because we were like we thought that if you just like I don't know we were young we were probably 10 years old and we had a you know a lighter and we had a frog we light the frog on fire we We were trying to light the frog on fire we thought he would just like ignite and it was not working (laughs) frog flammable how are we supposed to know that frogs aren't flammable you know I mean you did dissolve one so why would it not light on fire as well exactly hi everybody I'm Jared and I'm Nate and welcome back to Color in the Map. This is our final episode. And today we're going to be talking about a super interesting and super consequential election, the results of which set up the ideological boundaries of the party system that are pretty much still in place today. That would, of course, be the election of 1968. We will be discussing the events of the 60s, the race itself, and the fall of the New Deal coalition. We're tackling it all. Hippies, drugs, war, crime, race, sex, murder, Nixon's sweaty face. All this and more coming up on Color in the Map. From the Jared Combs Studios in Boston, Massachusetts, this is Color in the Map with Jared Tatro and Nate Colmoden. Lick Nixon? Yeah, you said he has a sweaty face. He does. He has a really sweaty face. Got him into some trouble in 1960. Yeah. I hear, okay. he, I hear he had a few a few tapes. Yeah, he does. we're actually gonna we're gonna talk about the tapes a little bit. But nobody can talk about those tapes. Not the Watergate tapes, though, because that's not really relevant to what we're talking about, but we're gonna talk about LBJ's tapes. So because he had tapes too. Um so just as a final reminder um, of the major characteristics of a, rele- a realignment election, um, number one, the election will act as a release of tension. Number two, there will be high turnout and high interest in the election. Number three, there will be a new dominant dividing issue that will come to dominate the electorate. Number four, there will be increased polarization among the electorate. And number five, the results are associated with a major shift in policy. Um, So, like usual, I'm going to give us a little bit of context to move through this election. Um, We're going to go through what each of the political parties were doing. And finally, we're going to look at the outcome and see if and how it was a realignment. Um, This one's going to be a little long today because there was a ton of stuff that was happening in the lead up to this election and also during this campaign cycle. So there's a lot of ground to cover, um, but it's all super interesting. And I think that it's in a lot of ways, still part of our like collective consciousness as a society, because these things only happened, you know, 50 years ago. Um, And for many of us, they're still within living memory. Um, Obviously not for me, because I'm so young and vibrant, but um, anyhow. So let's start with the political context of the election of 1968. So obviously we're talking about the 60s. So, so much, there is so much that could be considered when talking about the 60s. There's more than enough to fill another podcast, just talking about the 60s alone. Um, The decade had begun with this enormous promise um, that that was exemplified by um, the person of JFK and his youthfulness and his, you know, his vision and his sexiness. That's true. And so with the election of JFK at the beginning of the decade in 1960, it it felt like there was a a new wave. There was a rise of a new generation that brought with it so much promise. But by the end of the decade, the nation was looking back on 10 years of utter tumult and rapid social change that had really upended the country. And, you know, depending on who you asked, uh, had kind of torn it asunder in a lot of places. Um, So the 60s, Let's start our discussion, brief discussion of the 60s with looking at the civil rights movement. So the civil rights movement had really accelerated in the 60s following their major successes in the 50s, which included decisions like Brown v. Board of Education, which desegregated public schools in America, and also successful moments of civil disobedience like the Montgomery bus boycott. Um, We're going to touch on this topic that I'm about to say um, a little bit later in the episode. But um, Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, the 36th president, he signed the Civil Rights Act in 1964, and he also signed the Voting Rights Act in 1965. 
Both of these pieces of legislation really acted to end the Jim Crow era in the South by outlawing segregated uh, public accommodations and engaging federal resources to enfranchise Black voters. So that two-pronged sort of civil rights um, initiative, which was taken over by the federal government, that is what breaks the back of Jim Crow and starts to formally institute citizenship for Black people in the South. Both of these acts, the Civil Rights Act and the VRA, would constitute the first steps at making America a functioning multiracial democracy. Also, the period, of course, saw massive demonstrations organized by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and its leader, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, most famous among these is, of course, um, his March on Washington on August 28, 1963. And of course, the period also saw a rise in Black radicalism and Black militancy um, by leaders like Malcolm X, Bobby Seale, Huey Newton, Fred Hampton, and the Black Panther Party, more generally. But of course, um, Black advances in civil rights didn't go unanswered in the South, uh, especially. Um, you saw white backlash from the beginning. Um, you saw a resurgence of violence in the Klan. You also saw um, political backlash as well, which we'll be focusing on a lot later in this episode, um, specifically in the form of Alabama Governor George Wallace, the segregationist governor of Alabama, who in 1968 ran a far-right populist campaign um, and formed his own political party to contest the election, uh, the American Independent Party. And we'll be talking about him later in the episode. Um, so that's the civil rights, a brief overview of the civil rights movement in the 60s. Um, a major, major issue that we're going to be talking about throughout the episode, but I want to briefly touch upon now, is the war in Vietnam. Um, Kennedy had strengthened, during early in his administration, had really strengthened U.S. commitment to the South Vietnamese. Um, he was a firm believer that by spreading liberal ideas internationally, you could prevent the spread of communism. And that was very much in line with sort of the political thought of the time, was that if you were able to provide sort of social democratic, a social democratic base for people, then they wouldn't be tempted by the allure of communism because the state would, be our, would already be providing for their general needs. Um, LBJ retained almost all of JFK's foreign policy apparatus, all of the upper personnel he kept on after JFK was assassinated. Um, so his Vietnamese policy, which was, as JFK had designed it, was largely escalatory. Um, he kept that really in lockstep with the plans that JFK had aligned. Um, so partially to position himself as tough on the communists during the 64 campaign, Lyndon Johnson, he gets through Congress a piece of legislation called the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, um, which is essentially a blank check to do whatever he wants in Vietnam against Bro, the- they made, they made that shit up. There was, no, there was no like missile or anything. They just made that shit up so they could send more troops down into Vietnam. That is correct. So the basis upon which the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution was passed, um, which is the Gulf of Tonkin incident in which uh, an American destroyer claimed that they were fired upon by North Vietnamese ships. Um, that story has a lot of holes in it. <laughs> Everyone reacted to that situation super poorly, like LBJ. He was probably in the bathroom talking to somebody. Um, he does that. He would. He would literally. He, does, he did do that. Yeah. LBJ was famous for. Um, Yes, for having his aides come into the bathroom with him, or using the bathroom with the door open and speaking to his aides while on the toilet. Um, if, you're the, if, if you're the most powerful man in the world and you're trying to get out information to other people, you would have to do it all the time. So of course you're gonna be sitting on the toilet talking to people. It's better than tweeting on the it toilet. It is better than tweeting. That's true. I will give Johnson that. Um, he, he, might, he might've been partially racist, but Lyndon Johnson did sign the voting stuff. Oh, the voting. Yeah, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Bill. Bill. Yeah. Um, so after the Gulf of Tonkin resolution gets passed, in March of 1965, Johnson begins what's called Operation Rolling Thunder. And Operation Rolling Thunder is the largest sustained bombing campaign in world history. More bombs were dropped on North Vietnam than in all of World War II. Um, so- What about the Middle East, like now? Far far more than than any aerial attacks in the uh, Middle East today. So 
John, during Operation Rolling Thunder, the United States used napalm, um, which is a gelatinized sort of um, like fire. Yes, like it. So it's conductor. the way that napalm works is that it's gelatinized, but it's flammable. So when it drops, it spews out everywhere, but it's on fire and it sticks to things. So it causes massive fires and it can also get on people and burn them and kill them. Um, so there's horrible images of civilians being burned terribly by the use of napalm. Um, also, the defoliant Agent Orange was used um, to clear out the jungles in North Vietnam. Um, that chemical agent was later found to um, be a carcinogen. Super carcinogenic. Yes. Um, so the United States' actions in North Vietnam caused thousands of civilian deaths. They killed and maimed thousands of people. Um, and in that same month, March of 1965, that Operation Rolling Thunder began, the 1st Battalion of Combat Marines land at Da Nang in South Vietnam. So military involvement, boots on the ground involvement began in 1965 and had escalated and continued um, through those three years between 65 and 68. Um, opposition to the war steadily grew as involvement expanded and opposition really exploded following the institution of the draft in 1967. Why do they think that was a good idea and that, that that would be successful? So that's interesting that you ask that because Johnson actually believed pretty firmly that instituting the draft was better than calling up the Army Reserves and the National Guard because the men in the Army Reserves and the National Guard these are like 35 year old men with families. Um, so he so we grabbed like, the, so we grab their children instead. Yes, we grab um, like 20 somethings. Yeah. Because he's like, it's more politically expedient for me to do that than it would be to call up all these married men with children. Um, so again, do I agree with that? <laughs> it's pretty messed up. Um, that's, that's pretty shitty decision to be given. Like, well, yeah either call all of the youth from your country to fight and die or just get all the old people to do it and it also seems really unnecessary also because it's like yeah. the war itself is untenable didn't um, need to happen well, it just was unnecessary and the johnson administration knew this at the time that they were deploying troops to vietnam secretary of defense robert mcnamara knew as early as 1965 that the war was the situation in vietnam was not you know, was not going to be successful. Um, yeah, they knew that from the beginning because it was—it's a guerrilla war. Like, what are yes. we, what are we doing in the jungles of Vietnam other than to protect democracy? No, we're literally just trying to preserve um, whatever military campaign our government wants to fund. So that point actually is a really good segue into the next context topic for the 60s, which is the Cold War. So Vietnam is very, very closely tied to the Cold War. So um, the arms race is accelerating throughout the decade. Um, both major powers are pursuing proxy wars against each other, famously in Vietnam, as we were just saying, because the Soviets and the Chinese are arming the North Vietnamese. We obviously are fighting alongside, alongside the South Vietnamese. Um, most the most famous instance of a near confrontation in the 60s is of course the cuban missile crisis that occurred in october of 1962. um i'm not going to go into the cuban missile crisis right now but um it was a crisis it was a crisis it was bad we almost had a nuclear a crisis war. yeah we almost um, destroyed our planet over a bunch of uh missiles in cuba mm -hmm. it was almost the end of civilization um domestically in the 60s you see a lot of unrest. Um, there's multiple examples that we could talk about, but famously there were massive riots in Newark, New Jersey, and also in the Watts section of Los Angeles. Newark, New Jersey. Uh, New Jersey very hard over here. Are you repping New Jersey because no, I just- we, we, No, we rep Newark, New Jersey on, on the Color in the Map podcast pretty hard, I will, I will say. Yeah, I think that's true as well. We've talked about New Jersey a lot on this show. I Not always that. positively though. What? Name, say one the bad thing about New Jersey. I have every time I brought up New Jersey, it's been something nice. Because <clears throat> I think New Jersey Massachusetts. What do you what 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 shit are you about to say to New Jersey? What shit are you about to say to Massachusetts? We're the birthplace of revolution, baby. Uh, Plymouth Rock sucks. Fuck you. 
Yeah, Plymouth Rock does suck. Don't fucking yeah. go there. It's, it's a waste rock. of time. It's just a rock. It's not even, I doubt the Pilgrims even ever fucking touched it. The best thing about New Jersey is its access to New York City. And I would is that what people ask you when you say you're from New Jersey? Are they like, well, how far away are you from New York? Yeah, that's usually one of the questions that that gets asked. How far are you away from Boston? No one fucking asks me that. They're like, oh, pack the can, have it yet. I'm like, I don't fucking talk like that. I'm like, yeah, from Hoboken, asshole. Like, but anyway, um, back to unrest in the 60s. The period was also marred by political violence, the likes of which we really haven't seen since. Um, Most notably, there were the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, the 35th president. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy, who was killed. Um, both MLK and Bobby Kennedy were killed in 1968. Um, so lastly, in this um, context discussion in the 60s, let's talk about the anti-war movement and the counterculture. Um, so as opposition to the war grows with the progression of the decade, so does this distinct cultural identity that's centered around the most um, it's centered around this, like literally the most detestable generation of people who have maybe ever lived in human history. And that would of course be the baby boomers. I really can't stand there. There are older people than the baby boomers who did worse shit. The baby boomers kind of suck because like our generation, generation Z has reason for strong, stark political consciousness and direct action, right? Because the country we're growing up in sucks ass and like the situation politically, socially, and economically, our country is not in a great spot right now. So I, I mean, like, were we ever? Yes, we were. Name, please, please tell me. I'm gonna talk about it right now. Barack Obama, Barack Obama? No, Barack Obama. These people, were raised in times of unparalleled growth and prosperity. They were given nearly every opportunity one could imagine. And obviously I'm talking about white bourgeois baby boomers here, which the bourgeois baby boomers are most of the baby boomers because the middle class was much larger then than it is now. Um, So these people had excellent public schooling their entire lives. They could go to college for pocket change. But of course, they didn't have to go to college if they didn't want to, because you could um, get an entry level job with a high school diploma that would pay more than I would make at 45. So the boomers said, you know, fuck that. That's all lame consumerist bullshit and fuck the war. Let's get high and let's burn it all down. Um, So if you divorce the people from the culture that they created, because their culture is actually pretty, pretty dope. um, The counterculture is in fact, pretty far out. They produced some of the greatest music of all time and they did some of the most amazing drugs that have ever been created. So so the counterculture is very interesting because- Their weed was bad. Their weed was terrible. It was not potent at all. It's just like smoking actual grass. So that's the political context of the election of 1968. So let's move into a little bit of a closer analysis of the Democratic Party in this time. So as in other periods, the Democratic Party in 1968 is in rough shape very rough shape. Um, Despite LBJ's really, really strong domestic agenda, um, which is of course um, associated very closely with his war on poverty and his great society um, and his record on civil rights, which was pretty exemplary, um, his reputation had been destroyed by his actions in Vietnam. Um, There was so much animus against Johnson on the progressive wing of the Democratic Party that the group Americans for Democratic Action, which is a very strong, progressive group in that time, began to seek out candidates to challenge Johnson for the Democratic nomination. So at first, Americans for Democratic Action wants Bobby Kennedy to run for president against LBJ. Um, Bobby Kennedy at that point is um, a senator from New York, um, and he declines to run because he is reluctant to divide the party, and he also wants to keep his reputation really strong because he wants to run for president in 1972. Um, Minnesota Senator Eugene McCarthy, who is a staunch opponent of the war and a bit of an outsider, he agrees to run against Johnson. So the modern primaries that we know of are still taking shape at this time. Not every state has a primary in 1968 and some candidates don't participate in any of them. And they instead try to win the nomination at the convention. Um, At the New Hampshire primary on March 12th, Eugene McCarthy, 
almost wins the popular vote against Lyndon Johnson, which is in essence a victory. It sends shockwaves through the political system, his performance, and it proves that Johnson can be challenged in 1968. Four days after McCarthy's really stunning performance in New Hampshire, Bobby Kennedy changes course and enters the race to challenge LBJ. On March 31st of 1968, in a speech concerning Vietnam policy, LBJ announces three things, a bombing halt, a willingness to open negotiations with the North Vietnamese to um, craft a peace deal, and he also announces that he won't be seeking re-election. Um, and I'm actually going to play a bit of that speech right now. With America's future under challenge right here at home, with our hopes and the world's hopes for peace and the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. So soon after Johnson drops out um, on March 31st, his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, enters the race as well. So that makes three major Democratic candidates, Humphrey, uh, Eugene McCarthy, and Bobby Kennedy. So Hubert Humphrey enters the race. He, is, he has a really, really good record on civil rights. He was seen as way ahead of his time um, as a member of the Democratic Party in defense of civil rights. Um, he had given a great speech at the 1948 DNC in which he argued in support of a desegregation platform plank that actually won the party's support. He's a very, very strong liberal that defends the gains of the New Deal and the Great Society. But in 68, he's just too closely tied to LBJ. He has almost no independent identity apart from the Johnson administration. So Humphrey doesn't really, because of his late entry, doesn't contest any of the primaries. So he's waiting for the convention to happen to really plea his case. Meanwhile, Bobby Kennedy beats McCarthy in all of the primaries except one in which they're up against each other. So the primary process is moving forward rather smoothly. It looks like Kennedy is performing well, though it's still unsure as to whether or not he can whip up enough delegates to win at the convention. Then in the middle of all of that, on June 4th, 1968, on the night of the California primary in which Kennedy has delivered an absolutely must win victory over Eugene McCarthy, Robert F. Kennedy is shot and killed. Um, there is audio and video of this event happening. Um, it happened in a crowded hotel ballroom. Um, I would rather not play it because it's very upsetting. On the night of June 4th, Bobby Kennedy was wounded mortally in that hotel ballroom in California. And then he died in the early hours of June 5th, 1968. So with Kennedy dead and no viable path for McCarthy to win enough delegates to secure the nomination, um, the path is essentially cleared for Hubert Humphrey to become the nominee, despite having not competed in any of the primaries at all. Um, this, as might be predictable, leaves a lot of people unhappy um, as, it's expected that Humphrey's just going to continue Johnson's policy on Vietnam. Several anti-war groups planned demonstrations in Chicago ahead of the Democratic Convention planned there. In response, Chicago Mayor Richard Daley, who is a very much an old guard, old school machine Democrat, ramps up security measures in the city. He institutes an 11 o'clock curfew and he greatly expands the police presence on the streets. So there is palpable tension in the city of Chicago before the convention and the stage is set for conflict. At the Democratic convention itself, on the first night, there are clashes in the streets between protesters and police. Though delegates fought passionately over the inclusion of a peace plank in the party platform, one which would have called for a halt to the bombing of North Vietnam, no compromise um, could be made with the establishment wing of the party and an incredibly hawkish platform on Vietnam is adopted. It's far more harsh than the Republican platform and it's even more harsh than what George Wallace is talking about in Vietnam and George Wallace will talk about shortly. 
Um, at the last minute, anti-war Senator George McGovern of South Dakota enters the race as an alternative to Humphrey to try and round up the loose ends of the Kennedy and McCarthy wings of the party. It's unsuccessful and Humphrey is nominated um, while in the midst of his nomination, his party is collapsing around him and the city outside is really exploding. On fire. Yes. Um, so I'm actually going to play a little bit of the audio of Humphrey's acceptance speech. Um, and I'm also going to play some of the audio of the unrest in the streets um, during the 1968 Democratic Convention. I choose not simply to run for president. I seek to lead a great nation. And either we achieve true justice in our land, or we shall doom ourselves to a terrible exhaustion of body and spirit. That all of your high hopes, that all of your dreams, all of them will come to naught if we lose this election, and many of them can be realized with the victory that can come to us. And now I appeal, I appeal to you, to those thousands, yea, millions of young Americans to join us not simply as campaigners, but to continue as vocal, creative, and even critical participants in the politics of our time. Never were you needed so much and never could you do so much if you would have helped now. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream. Robert F. Kennedy, as you saw tonight, had a great vision. If America will respond to that dream and that vision, if America will respond to that dream and that vision, their deaths will not mark the moment when America lost its way but it will mark the time when America found its conscience. Remember that those who founded this republic said that in order to secure these inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. I submit my fellow Americans we dare do no less in our time if this republic is to survive. I say to this great convention tonight and to this great nation of ours, I am ready to lead our country. By the night of the presidential nominations, the National Guard backed up the police to keep streets clear of demonstrators. The guards used tear gas but the police used nightsticks. So coming out of the convention and entering the general election season, the Democrats are in really rough shape. Um, but Humphrey chooses as kind of a stabilizing force on the ticket. He picks for the um, nominee for vice president the senator from Maine, Edmund Muskie. So Ed Muskie is a very able, sort of intelligent and inoffensive choice. Um, he doesn't really ruffle a lot of feathers. So, and that's as much that Humphrey can really hope for at this point. He doesn't so piss anybody off. Yes, correct. So let's look at the Republicans. The Republicans in 68, for once, are actually doing okay. So they went through an identity crisis for a couple of years there after Eisenhower left. Um, they swung out really, really far to the right in 64 with their nominee, Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater, and they had lost in a landslide to Lyndon Johnson. Um, now in 1968, they kind of turned back the clock, but not really. So this whole segment is really focused on the terrifying resurgence of Richard Milhouse Nixon. So... Richard, that his middle name is Milhouse so much. I know. He is that Simpsons character. <laughs> Milhouse is a terrible, genuinely terrible name to give a child. It was his mother's maiden name, which I didn't learn until recently, but... I stand by my previous name. His mother was Hannah Milhouse Nixon. And so they gave him the middle name Milhouse. 
I think it's Maybe Dutch. My child, no house. Maybe it's Dutch. I don't know. Um, or German. I think Mil- it's German. Milhaus. <laughs> That's what it sounds like, right? Milhaus. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Pretzels. Oh, um, Germany. Beer and cheese. Those are my two favorite. No. Beer, cheese, and pretzels. <laughs> Oh my god. So the terrifying return of Richard Milhouse Nixon. I'm terrified. So Nixon had served as vice president for eight years under Dwight Eisenhower from 1953 until 1961. Didn't he say that was like one of the worst experiences of his life being like vice president? Yes. Um, Nixon, as with most vice presidents before, like probably before Walter Mondale, Walter Mondale was the first vice president to actually be given like real responsibility. Every vice president before that is like, this is the worst job on the face of the planet. Um, so Nixon really hated, or at least I, I would think it's fair to say that he was unhappy as vice president. Um, in 1960, Nixon is the Republican nominee for president against JFK. Um, and he famously lost that election by a thousand votes in Illinois, that was what swung the race to Kennedy and actually resulted in Kennedy being elected president. Um, So Nixon is kind of down and out for that early part of the 60s. Um, So he loses the presidency in 1960. In 1962, he goes back to California where he's from and he runs for governor and he loses. And Nixon, he even counts himself out at this point. there is a famous press conference after that 1962 loss where he says, like, he's he's really bitter and he's up, like, talking to the reporters and he says, you know, you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Like, and he's like, goodbye, gentlemen. Like, they're about to miss him. Like, yeah, exactly. So Nixon, in the intervening years between 62 and 68, he relocates to New York City he starts working at a really ritzy law firm and he and a bunch of political operatives begin to recuperate his image. So in 68, Nixon returns from the political dustbin to lay claim to the presidency. um, And then in a number of years, swiftly returns himself to the political dustbin. But we won't cover that last part in this episode. We'll only be talking about- his meteoric resurgence, not Watergate. So though it's not a sure thing that he's going to get the nomination, Nixon was the strongest candidate for the duration of the primary season. He won all of the primaries. Um, His longstanding reputation as a cold warrior allowed him to focus on other issues in Vietnam because people trusted that he'd know what to do in Vietnam because he's always, that's been his brand for so long. When he was in Congress in the 40s and 50s, he was seen as a Cold War hawk. He was seen as a guy who was not going to tolerate communist influence at all. He'd also directly confronted Khrushchev as vice president. Um, So Nixon, instead of Vietnam, focused a lot of his campaign on civil unrest, especially in the cities. And he introduced the law and order racialized rhetoric that American politics is so familiar with today. We've heard that before, I think. Oh, yes, we have. the former, most recent president, he loves to talk about law and order. So it was Nixon. Nixon was the first one who was able to tap into the unspoken white suburban desire for a bit of peace and quiet. Silent majority. Let's not forget about the silent majority. Nixon harnessed the silent majority. He turned that into a salient political stance. Um, And white people have loved it ever since. But Other than Nixon, there are other Republicans running for president. So he briefly faced, Nixon himself briefly faced a challenge um, from Michigan Governor George Romney uh, during the primary season. George Romney is of course the father of Mitt Romney. So at the Republican convention in Miami Beach, first of all, fantastic location for a political convention, Miami Beach, Florida. Um, Nixon faced challenges from his left from New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller, who was a noted liberal Republican. Yes, there used to be some of those. And he also faced a challenge from his right, from California Governor Ronald Reagan, who favored an escalation of the war in Vietnam. So Nixon had had a reputation in the past for being not ready for prime time, meaning that he really could not um, make himself look presentable on television. 
Um, famously, he had a series of debates with JFK in 1960, um, in which he had appeared very scraggly, very sweaty. Um, it was a sharp contrast to the debonair Kennedy, who was so charming and sexy on television. Um, so Nixon's strategy in 68 was centered around creating the image of what they labeled the new Nixon. The new Nixon was a controlled, measured figure who had the experience to know what to do in these very troubled times. Um, and this image was crafted in part by his communications head in his campaign, Roger Ailes. <laughs> so Roger Ailes, Roger Ailes pursued a media strategy in 68 with Nixon in which they pretty much said, we're never gonna put Nixon in a media environment that we cannot control entirely, which is kind of genius. Which is why they set up Fox News, which is brilliant. Correct. And and just as a quick example of the communication strategy of the new Nixon, um, we're gonna play some clips from Nixon's acceptance speech at the RNC in 1968. Tonight, I again proudly accept that nomination for President of the United States. As we look at America, we see cities enveloped in smoke and flame. We hear sirens in the night. We see Americans dying on distant battlefields abroad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? Did American boys die in Normandy and Korea and in Valley Forge for this? Listen to the answer to those questions. It is another voice. It is a quiet voice in the tumult of the shouting. It is the voice of the great majority of Americans, the forgotten Americans, the non-shouters, the non-demonstrators. They're not racist or sick. They're not guilty of the crime that plagues the land. They are black, they're white. They're native born and foreign born. They're young and they're old. They work in America's factories. They run America's businesses. They serve in government. They provide most of the soldiers who died to keep us free. They give drive to the spirit of America. They give lift to the American dream. They give steel to the backbone of America. They're good people. They're decent people. They work and they save and they pay their taxes and they care. When the strongest nation in the world can be tied down for four years in a war in Vietnam with no end in sight, when the richest nation in the world can't manage its own economy, when the nation with the greatest tradition of the rule of law is plagued by unprecedented lawlessness. When a nation has been known for a century for equality of opportunity is torn by unprecedented racial violence. And when the president of the United States cannot travel abroad or to any major city at home without fear of a hostile demonstration, then it's time for new leadership for the United States of America. And also briefly, I just want to say that that Nixon communication strategy was almost perfectly replicated in 2020 by the Joe Biden campaign. So <laughs> the Biden campaign was like, we are literally never going to put Joe Biden in a media environment that we cannot entirely control. Nixon presented this aura that he was the kind of like the elder statesman, the measured sort of no nonsense man. Nixon presented himself as the man who would be able to stop the riots. He would be able to stop the youthful disrespect of authority. Um, and in an unbelievable contrast with the Democrats, he would bring an end to the war in Vietnam. He would not allow it to go on any further. He would see- Which doesn't make any sense at all. He, would Actually, see no, he did that, he did that as a um, political, uh, 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 what, what's, its, what's its thing? A ploy. Yeah, yeah, it was a lie. So he could be like, we take everyone back. This, this was Johnson's fault. This is why you hate the Democrats. He said, we will pursue peace with honor in Vietnam. He's so but smart. God damn it. Whatever that means. Um, so the platform that the Republicans adopted, the, the, so the Republicans nominate Nixon on the first ballot. So Nixon gets the nomination. Despite the challenges from Romney and Reagan and Rockefeller, he gets it. He nominates Maryland Governor Spiro Agnew to be his vice president. 
um, the platform adopted by the Republicans took a much, much softer stance on Vietnam than the Democrats, leave it, but it was also very opaque. So it leaves open the possibility of a bombing halt, but it in no way commits to an escalation of the war. So it's like, we could maybe see what happens and, you know, bombing halt could be a necessary term for peace, but, you know, we'll see. There was a third candidate in this race, and that's who we have to talk about next. Um, so this next section of the episode, I have entitled The Changing South, George Wallace, and the American Independent Party. So since the Civil War, the South had been very, very strongly aligned with the Democratic Party at every single level. With near complete disenfranchisement of people of color following the end of Re Reconstruction, the Democrats or the Democratic Party apparatus, I should say, was used in the South as a vehicle for codifying white supremacy and maintaining white supremacist social order at all cost. So this is a long enduring political alliance in the South between white Southerners and the Democratic Party. It endures through the turn of the century, through the New Deal, through World War II, but the political alliance begins to become unstable in 1948, when the Democratic Party, like we were mentioning before, adopts a pro-civil rights plank at their convention, which was largely due to the influence of a speech that was given by Hubert Humphrey. In 1948, at that convention, the Mississippi delegation walked out of the convention, and South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond started an offshoot party, the Dixiecrats, that contested the election as a deeply conservative anti-integration party. His Dixiecrats party swept through the Southern states and won nearly all of them, which was the first time since um, the end of reconstruction that any of the states in the deep South had been denied to the Democrats. Um, in the fifties, the Democrats backed off their commitment to civil rights. They nominated John W. Sparkman for vice president in 1952 and he was a vehement um, segregationist. The South kind of returns to the fold in the fifties. They vote very strongly for Adlai Stevenson in 52 and 56, but the party lost the presidency through that entire decade. In 1960, they don't vote very strongly for JFK. What they instead do is they elect unpledged delegates or unpledged electors to the electoral college. So that's essentially like voting none of the above on your ballot, which I think is kind of funny. Um, Johnson, signs the Civil Rights Act in 1964. And in that year, there is an election. And for the first time since Reconstruction, the Republican Party sweeps the Deep South. Barry Goldwater, the uber, uber conservative that we were talking about earlier, wins massive victories in the South. So by 1968, the age-old Southern Alliance to the Democratic Party is it's fraying. Um, an absolutely critical component of the New Deal coalition, which is the Southern voting bloc, which supports the Democratic Party, it's coming apart. In the middle of all this, enter Alabama Governor George Wallace. George Wallace is a Democrat. He is a segregationist firebrand and a culture warrior. So he loves to attack hippies and he embraces this politics of fear. Um, much of what Wallace says is not unfamiliar to us because it sounds like something you would you would have heard from Donald Trump, which is like these radical racism, these radical anti-segregationists, they want to replace you with people of color. So it's the replacement sort of theory that Tucker Carlson loves to espouse. It's it's this politics of fear that racial progressivism will mean the end of white society. And it's of course very salient in the South because, you know, that ap appeals- They like white society. Exactly. I think it's fair to say that Southern states in the sixties were pretty accustomed to white supremacy by that point. So in 1968, Johnson obviously is not going to win the South. No Democrat's gonna win the South. Wallace is deeply opposed to LBJ on civil rights and to his handling of the war in Vietnam. Um, so what he does, is he starts a third party, the far-right American Independent Party, and runs for president with the goal of throwing the election to the House of Representatives and gaining concessions on segregation. So in other words, under the Constitution, right, if no one candidate gets a majority in the Electoral College, 
in a presidential election. What will happen is that the election will go to the House of Representatives where they will decide who the president's going to be. Wallace's plan was to do that and then in the negotiations in the House enact concessions from whoever was going to be the president. So in many ways, as I was saying, the politics of Wallace are very similar to those of Trump. He embraces a paleoconservative sort of foreign policy, one which asserts that the United States will neither be kicked around by the communists nor be tied down to commitments to countries or organizations abroad. Um, he sees NATO and the UN through like this very reciprocal lens. So he's like, what are we getting out of this? <laughs> like, we're giving you all this money. What are we supposed to be getting? And they're like, I don't know, not another world war. <laughs> East maybe. Um, not World War III. Um, but Wallace was not, when I say he's a conservative, that's a bit of a misnomer because he was not a traditional sort of balance the budget, cut taxes conservative. He had been a staunch supporter of the New Deal and of FDR. And he sought to expand social programs for poor whites. Um, Wallace's, go Wallace's goal was to restore the original order of the New Deal one in which- um, Or just white people? Yes, one in which a social democratic society was achieved through like a racial hierarchy. It was a segregated social democratic society. So white people could be um, protected by the social safety net first. And then what was, what was left would go to everybody else. So the Wallace campaign at first was looking pretty salient in a lot of areas. Um, it was looking so salient that it looked like it might actually achieve its goal of throwing the election to the house. Um, it appealed very strongly to, uh, to blue collar workers and it received union endorsements as far north as Michigan. Um, the campaign, however, was derailed by comments made at a press conference by Wallace's running mate, former Air Force General Curtis LeMay, who when asked by reporters, expressed a great openness to the use of nuclear weapons in Vietnam, saying, quote, well, we seem to have a phobia about nuclear weapons. I think there are many occasions when it would be most efficient to use nuclear weapons, unquote. After LeMay's comments, the campaign's national appeal began a steep decline. However, it did remain salient in the South because the South, I think, was pretty committed to Wallace at this point. I don't think there was a lot that he could have done that would have broken their commitment to him, similar to their commitment to Trump in 2020 and 2016. Let's move into the general election. So going into the fall, Nixon's election seems pretty much like a sure thing. The Democrats are in disarray. Wallace is not going to be able to mount a serious um, offensive campaign outside of the South. But things begin to shift a little on September 30th. So on September 30th, Hubert Humphrey gives a speech in Salt Lake City where he formally breaks with LBJ's policy on Vietnam and says that if elected, he would stop the bombing of North Vietnam to achieve peace. After Humphrey gives this speech, he sees a very steady rise in the polls. Um, so once Humphrey begins this bounce back, Nixon being himself, he's a very paranoid man. Um, he always has been and he always will be. Um, he's not about to stand by and do nothing. When he feels threatened, he is ready to do whatever it takes to achieve his goal, as will be proven amply during Watergate. But um, he also makes some subversive moves in the election of 1968 as well. So let's briefly talk about this thing called the Anna Chenault Affair. So during the fall, the U.S. government has been meeting with the North and the South Vietnamese in joint meetings in Paris to try to broker a peace deal. Um, so there's this woman. Her name is- That would be such an awkward meeting. Oh, it's extremely awkward. They can't even agree over the, what the shape of the table should be, whether it should be rectangular or circular. Are you shitting me? No, that was a huge yeah. argument. Yeah. No, they can't come to terms about that either. Um, so there's this woman. Her name is Anna Chenault. Anna Chenault is a Chinese-born Republican socialite who had married an American general and moved to the United States at the end of uh, World War II. She is a close ally of the Nixon campaign. So Chenault has connections in the South Vietnamese embassy, and she is the conduit between the Nixon campaign and the South Vietnamese government. 
So with the three sides close to an agreement in Paris, um, and the election is nearing, Nixon instructs Chenault to go to the South Vietnamese and tell them to hold off on making a deal until Nixon has won the presidency. Um, he claims that he will be able to get them a better deal than Johnson would, but of course his intentions are really to make sure that the Democrats don't get any credit for successfully brokering a, uh, a peace deal. The South Vietnamese do as Nixon instructs them, and the negotiations are successfully sabotaged. So the FBI is aware of all of this. They have been monitoring Anna Chenault and her actions and her contacts with the South Vietnamese. They know what she's been saying. They illegally wiretapped the phones in the South Vietnamese embassy. Um, and Johnson also knew about the Chenault affair. So I'm gonna play briefly a phone call clip from Johnson to the Senate Republican leader, Everett Dirksen, in which he voices his concern about Nixon's behavior and compares it to treason. I want to talk to you as a friend and very confidentially because I think that we're we skirting on dangerous ground and I thought I ought to give you the facts and uh, you ought to uh, pass them on if you choose. If you don't, why, then I will a little later. Some of our folks including some of the old China lobby, are going to the Vietnamese embassy and saying, please notify the president that if he'll hold out till November the 2nd, they could get a better deal. Uh -huh. Now, I'm reading their hand, Everett. I don't want to get this in the campaign. That's right. And they oughtn't to be doing this. This is treason. I know. So Humphrey is also aware of Nixon's actions, but he's not privy to as much information as Johnson is. Um, the public is not, ultimately the public is not made aware of Nixon's actions before the election. But days before the election happens, Johnson announces a bombing halt against the North and Humphrey gets another polling bump. So going into the election, this looks like it's going to go down to the wire. This looks like it's going to be a very, very competitive race. Um, Humphrey himself even feels fairly confident that he could win. So let's talk about the election outcome. <laughs> Unfortunately, Richard Nixon wins the presidency. Um, he becomes the 37th president of the United States. His electoral margin is pretty sizable. He wins with 301 votes to Humphrey's 191 to Wallace's 46. Uh, his popular vote margin though is a lot less impressive. Uh, he wins by less than 1% in the popular vote. Nixon gets 43.4% of the vote, Humphrey 42.7, and Wallace gets 13.5%. Humphrey had carried much of the Northeast and Northern Midwest. He carried Washington State. He also carried Texas, which was a big deal. Um, Nixon carried the West Coast, the Plains, the Mid-Atlantic, the Southwest, and the Rocky Mountain States. He also carried Ohio and Florida, crucially. Florida was a big break for Nixon. Um, Wallace swept all the way through the Deep South. So with this election, the New Deal co coalition is, it's gone. It's completely fallen apart. Blue collar union workers in industrial states like Wisconsin and Ohio, both of which went red, and farmers in the Midwest and the Plains, they all went for Nixon. And the Deep South had gone to Wallace. So the Democrats hold on to urban centers and they hold on to people of color. Um, those are two demographics that they continue to perform really well with today, but 1968 does prove to be the nail in the coffin of the grand coalition that FDR had built. And 1972, the next election would prove even more devastating for Democrats. Nixon would win in an absolute landslide, winning 49 out of 50 states. So we are now left to ask, was it a realignment election? Well, with that analysis there that I just kind of laid out, it seems definitely like it would have been. Um, so let's go through the five points. Number one, the election acts as a flashpoint or a release of tension. Yes, frustration over the Johnson administration's handling of Vietnam and civil unrest and the sense of anxiety from the upheaval of the times incentivized change. And that change was de delivered in 1968. Voter concern and turnout are unusually high. This one actually does not really apply to the situation. Turnout had fallen by 1% compared to 1964. I think that the fact that turnout had actually fallen compared to 1964 speaks again 
and we had talked about this in the last episode about 1932, it speaks to the disillusionment with government that happens during hard times. Because turnout had fallen between 1928 and 1932, and turnout had fallen between 1964 and 1968. Because when things aren't working well, when the government is failing to solve your problems, I think people are not motivated to go out and vote, um, no matter how dire things look. Number three, a new dominant dividing issue among voters replaces an old one. Again, no, this is really not applicable. 40% um, of the electorate had cited Vietnam as the biggest problem facing the country in 1968. Vietnam would continue to plague the country until 1973 when large scale American involvement ended. South Vietnam, of course, would fall to the North Vietnamese in 1975. But when economic issues start to overtake Vietnam, that doesn't really come until the mid seventies. Um, but growth is beginning to slow by the end of the 60s, though not at a pace in which it can eclipse Vietnam as being the major dividing issue among the electorate. Number four, the electorate is increasingly polarized in the lead up to the election. Yes, absolutely. The electorate is divided over Vietnam, over civil rights, over youth culture. They're divided before and they're divided after this election. And finally, number five, the election results are associated with a major shift in policy. Kind of, though Nixon himself was not a hardline conservative, not in the way that we would think of it today. Um, he often believed that government could be used to solve problems and exemplified that belief through actions like um, the establishment of the EPA. It was the breakup of the New Deal coalition in 1968 that would lead to the major policy shifts that would occur in the future when men like Ronald Reagan would ascend to the presidency. Because Reagan was certainly a modern conservative. Um, the greatest conservative ever to be born, other than Margaret Thatcher. That's why they were such good friends. They're, they, they're the reason our country is, 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 is how great it is today. You know, they definitely—they were definitely like making out in 10 Downing Street in the White House. I want you to have that image in your head for the rest of the day. Ronald Reagan. It, it was there. It was it was there in the background. Like, Ronald Reagan macking on Margaret Thatcher. That that it stays in my head. It's gonna stay in my head too, which is so grotesque. But anyway, um, so that's the election of 1968. So let's. Briefly, if we could, let's talk about what this show has been about. So in every episode of this show, we've talked about tangible ways that important elections in our history have had, you know, both immediate and long-term effects, changing the lives of the people who lived through them and reverberating over time to affect us today. In 1860, we saw the rise of the GOP, the incitement of the Civil War, the eventual end of slavery, we began to answer the question of who in the United States is considered a citizen. In 1896, we challenged 30 years of conservatism. We saw the agrarian uprising and the rise of grassroots politics in the United States. And we saw the attachment of liberal and conservative ideologies to the major parties. We also asked the question, what does citizenship entitle you to in the United States? In 1932, we saw the formation of the New Deal coalition the birth of the modern social safety net, the beginning of 30 years of democratic domination. And we answered the question of what citizenship entitles you to. In 1968, we saw the end of the New Deal coalition, the birth of the modern subtextual racial politics, the rise of the modern right. And we saw the questions of entitlement that were answered seemingly in the New Deal thrown back into question. This series has shown that history is a nuanced thing. It does not move in a straight line, but to understand where we've been is to understand where we are and to have a better sense of where we might go in the future. Realignment theory as we've used it on the show is useful in achieving this. Understanding power shifts and the ways power has been wielded in times of crisis gives us a better understanding of the ways in which the leaders of the past have helped to shape the present and how existing power structures and allegiances came to be. When history gives us a greater understanding of our contemporary lives, it's doing its job. It's up to us to use that information to infer about our future. So that's it for today's episode and for the series, I guess. Um, thank you guys so much for coming on this little journey with us, uh, learning about how key moments in history can embody massive and enduring changes that affect us to this day. 
Um, I hope you guys learned a lot and had as much fun listening as we did making the show. I'd like to thank my co-host, Nate, and all of you for tuning in. For a full list of our sources for this episode, check out the link in our bio. Goodbye forever. Bye forever. There we leave.